This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. 74 years ago, anyone know who died 74 years ago? Come on. No? Anyone at home? No? Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi died 74 years ago and um, was assassinated at Point Bank Range by a guy called Nathuram Gods, who was a member of the Hindu right-wing political party that had long accused Gandhi of betraying Hindus and being too pro-Muslim and too soft on Pakistan. And they assassinated him, or he he assassinated him. Gandhi, of course, was a controversial figure um, who challenged the political and the religious elites of his day and paid with his life. And since his death... He's been, many have discussed his legacy, many have thought about his legacy, many have explained his legacy. And uh, for many in India, he's considered the father of their nation who led uh, India to independence uh, from the British Empire. And, um, and, and many also uh, have uh, considered him to have inspired them in their nonviolent resistance, people like uh, uh, civil rights leaders like um, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and others. The reality is, is that, uh, as with many charismatic leaders who are killed or assassinated, um, the legacy is usually discussed for decades afterwards. And people have different perspectives and different stories are told. And, you know, um, whilst we struggle to interpret the legacy of different people who have been assassinated, my mind is drawn to Jesus and the discussion and the interpretation of Jesus' legacy. Jesus of Nazareth, that is. What was his legacy and how do we interpret his death and resurrection? And I think that um, it's fair to say, quite apart from the um, amount of discussion and interpretation that has gone on in the last 2,000 years, and I'm talking people like Luther, Calvin, uh, people who who we would consider fairly modern compared to 2,000 years of history, I'm talking actually about the Bible, I'm talking about the New Testament, I'm talking about the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I'm talking about the letters of Paul. The interesting thing about letters of Paul is, is that um, they were written before the Gospels. You might not be familiar with that, and part of the reason will be because your Bible, in your Bible you get the Gospels first, then you get the letters, and we tend to assume, oh well the Gospels have to come first because they're talking about Jesus' life, and then Acts, talking about the Acts of the Apostles, and then Paul's letters follow. No, actually the first written documents that we have are Paul's letters and they were written about 16 years after Jesus died. The first letter that we know or scholars think was the earliest was 1 Thessalonians Um, and also most scholars would agree that only seven of the letters that we have that are attributed to Paul actually were written by Paul firsthand. Um, The others were written by people who were writing in his tradition and people who followed him. So we have the discussion if you like in the letters of Paul and also in the Gospels of Jesus we have the discussion of who the early church thought Jesus was and what was the significance of his death and resurrection. And, and you can see that. I could point that out to you in loads of different places in the New Testament. So that's our primary source this morning. We're going to be looking at the account of Mark. As Dan said, we've been working on the Gospel of Mark, which is actually, strictly speaking, it's the Gospel of Jesus according to Mark, rather than the Gospel of Mark, because it's not Mark's Gospel, it's Jesus' Gospel that Mark's retelling. So we're going to be looking at this um, and uh, asking ourselves the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection? Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? 
He died for our sins. Um, he enabled us to uh, find a way forwards with our present struggles. He defeated the powers and authorities. What did Paul say? I think it's in Colossians. Uh, defeated and disarmed the, uh, the, the the powers that lie behind all the evil in the world. And uh, so there's different ways in which Paul and the gospel writers discuss in, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Today we're going to look at Mark first of all. And we're going to focus in on the account of Mark that he writes about where Jesus is in the room celebrating the Passover feast just before his death. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Mark 14. So you might want to pull up the Bible app on your phone if you've got it and follow along with me. I just want to really big up the Bible app. If you haven't got it on your phone, the reason you'll get it on your laptop as well if you want. But basically, the Bible app gives you a way of accessing the Bible in a way that is much harder to do if you have a paper Bible in your hand. Because you can literally just do a keyword search, you can search for phrases, and you can find anything you pretty much want. If you, can, if you think of some words in the Bible, a phrase that you, you kind of know but you just can't locate in the Bible, just put it into the Bible app and you'll find out exactly where it is. So really useful to have the Bible app on your phone. Um, and so if, you're, if you've got it now, it's Mark 14, we're going to look at verses 22, 25. So... If you're familiar with this story, Jesus has told his disciples to go and book a room uh, to prepare the Passover. And the Passover was a meal where they slaughtered a lamb and they had um, uh, particular herbs and unleavened bread and they, they drank wine. And, uh, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. This is the context of this story. So while they were eating, uh, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God, which must have been left the disciples feeling very perplexed as to what he meant by that. So Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Jack, a couple of weeks ago, talked about this, about his arrival in Jerusalem, the significance of his arrival. He arrived as, as a king. Um, he, he proceeds to turn the temple upside down, challenge the authority of the temple rulers. And then he tells his disciples, right, it's time of Passover. We've come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Go and prepare it. Go and get a slaughtered lamb. Go and get the herbs. Go and get the unleavened bread. And we're going to eat together. So this is the story of him eating the Passover with his disciples. Now, you might remember what the story of the Passover is. But for those of you that are not familiar with it, I just want to run through it with you. So... Um, you, you may be familiar just because of things like Joseph and his maze of technical dream co um, and different Disney movies that the story is the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptian empire. Now, it's a big Egyptian empire. Um, I shared a, 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 a story uh, that there's actually more pyramids apparently in Sudan than there are in Egypt. Did you know that? I don't know if it's actually true. I think I might have read it on Facebook. Anyway, uh, it's, probably, it's probably not true. Uh, but... Uh, what it does give us a gist of is the fact that the Egyptian empire was more than what we currently call Egypt. It was a bigger space. It was, it was like any empire. They, they swallowed up lots of different nations and, and tribes. So um, big empire, big powerful empire. The Jews somehow have got themselves enslaved there and they are the victims not just of apartheid, what we would call social apartheid, but also the scholars think they're victims of genocide. So it's a pretty nasty situation. And... Um, 
the tradition has it that Yahweh sent a number of plagues upon the Egyptians to try and force the Pharaoh to release, that was the, Pharaoh is the name for the king of Egypt, uh, to release the Jews um, and let them go back to their ancestral home. Now, whatever the cause of those plagues, and there's, if, you, you know, if you Google it or read books on it, you'll, you'll, you'll real, really will read many different uh, ideas and explanations. But the meaning of this was more important than the actual reality. It's what the Jews attached meaning to. In other words, um, why did God send the plagues? Now the final plague is probably the most devastating and it's a plague that affects the firstborn uh, of every family. Firstborn child, which if you know in traditional society, the firstborn child was the one that inherited the the birthright, if you like, of their father. Um, uh, Also the firstborn of all animals. So, you know, this was a agricultural society so the first one of you know if, if it was say Clara and I we might have a few sheep and a, a cow perhaps in our in our in our uh, small holding you know it would be the firstborn of the animals that would have died as well so there's this uh, there's this horrible plague that's sent to kill the firstborn child and firstborn animal of every household and you can read about this in Exodus 11 verse 1 so if you've got your Bible app, just tap on Exodus and uh, go to chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. And then fast forward to verse 4 and verse 5. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. And every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at a handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And to protect the Jewish families from this fate, Moses, who's the kind of de facto leader of the Jews in Egypt, he instructs every family to slaughter a lamb on the 14th day of the first month. So they reorganise the calendar. They say this is going to be the first month of the calendar, so we're going to have a new calendar um, we, we use the Gregorian calendar, they were using a different calendar. So on the 14th day of the first month, they are to have a feast of roasted lamb, herbs and bread made without yeast. You want to know why people tend to eat uh, lamb at Easter? Um, or yeah, lamb at Easter basically, we had a Lego lamb last week. It's this tradition that comes from the Passover. Each household then had to take some of the blood that had been um, spilt as a result of slaughtering this lamb, some of that lamb's blood, and paint it on the door frames of their home, of their front door. So literally paint the blood over the door frame of their front door as a sign to Yahweh that he would pass over, get it? That's why it's called the Passover. He would pass over their home without killing any of the firstborn in their household. This is what Passover means. This is the celebration that Jews ever since have celebrated on the 14th day of the first month, which generally falls in April. This moment of liberation from the Egyptians was such a big deal. You talk to any Jew and they'll tell you about Passover because they celebrate it every year. And they celebrate it with a specific meal. The meal doesn't change because the elements of the meal are symbolic of the different aspects of what Passover meant. So for instance, you've got the lamb which is uh, slaughtered in, in order to uh, protect the Jewish families. You've got the bitter herbs to, to uh, uh, memorialise their suffering in Egypt. And you've got the unleavened bread as well made without yeast. And, uh, and so what happens if you go to a Passover meal, and some of you will know that in previous years, um, our, our former colleague Mal would lead us in a Passover uh, meal here at the station actually. 
and uh, you'd usually have someone that would preside over the meal, usually an elder, who would, so we chose Mark because he was the oldest. Um, I'm joking, because <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Um, and uh, and the, the elder would retell the story of the Passover and all of the exodus from Egypt, and he would retell it, usually the eldest men, male in the family. And that's what happens. So if you're from a Jewish family, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, in this instance, Jesus is the elder, okay, amongst his disciples. So he's the most senior member of their group. And so he presides over the Passover meal. And so when we read that Jesus stood up to break bread and, and, to, and to raise a, a glass of wine, actually Jesus was participating in the same tradition that elders have participated in ever since a uh, thousand years before, this, before Jesus and a 2,000 years since. What's actually happening here is, is that Jesus stands up with the third glass. There's four glasses or four what we would call toasts. Picks up uh, the third glass of wine and he tells the story. And he's meant to tell the story of the Exodus. But instead he does something different. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he gave thanks he broke it and gave it to his disciples and he didn't say he didn't say this is the bread of our suffering which our fathers ate in the wilderness he didn't say that that's what the disciples would have expected him to say in fact the disciples would have celebrated Passover with Jesus in the preceding years and Jesus would have told the same story he would have said this is the bread of suffering which our fathers ate in the wilderness but he didn't say that on this occasion he said this is the bread of my suffering This is the bread of my suffering. And then when he picked up the glass of wine, the third glass of wine, he should have said, this is the cup of lamb's blood that seals my covenantal relationship with you, which is the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. But instead, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Now, I don't know if you can think of a time of great emotional tension in your life. Can you think of something where you were really emotionally anxious or extremely happy. Is that memory seared into your memory? Is that experience rather seared into your memory? Every little detail? And the reason I ask you to think about that is because this moment would have been seared into the disciples' memory. Jesus has already caused an absolute stir. It's, it's easy to think, oh, when Jesus went to the temple, he just turned a few tables over. No, he didn't. He, 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 was, he did something which was so socially unacceptable that the temple authorities from that point on wanted to kill him. And that the disciples knew that Jesus' death was imminent. How do I know that? Well, just that night, we, we read in Mark that Peter's got a sword attached to his leg. He's got, why has he got a sword? Because he expects Jesus to be attacked. It's a time of great emotional tension. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the Passover meal and completely changes the story. No wonder the early disciples could remember this word for word. No wonder they knew exactly what had happened. And I would ask you, is it any wonder that the early church described Jesus' death like the sacrifice of a Passover lamb? The, the letters that Paul wrote and some of the other letters that aren't ascribed to Paul like Hebrews and Peter and John, they write in graphic detail about what this meant. The letter to the Hebrews uh, says, uh, which I think is a wonderful discussion and interpretation of the rich imagery um, that, um, 
that, that we understand from the from the uh, from, from about the Jesus of life. He he, he talked about this being uh, sorry the, the righteousness that he was talked about this being the sacrifice sent to end all sacrifices, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The metaphor of a sacrificial lamb is right out of Jewish history, but it was also a very contemporary metaphor for them as well. You see, at that time, if you committed a crime, if you committed, if you broke the law. You didn't necessarily get, a, you know, an electronic tag strapped around your ankle. You didn't get a community service. You didn't get a prison sentence. What you did was you went to the temple and you made a sacrifice. And the type of sacrifice depended on the seriousness of your crime. Um, so basically you had to pay more because it was, a, it was an economic thing. You know, if you had to buy an animal to take it to the temple to sacrifice it, you had to buy it, take it to the temple to be sacrificed, and that was it. You didn't see that animal again. You didn't get to eat it. And this was a community that, you know, where, you know, eating a lamb would have been a really big deal. That's a big cost. So for someone to pay, uh, pay for a sacrifice, take it to the temple to atone for their sins, because, and, and the word sin means transgression, it means breaking the law, that's how you dealt with your crime. And so, as well as, or, or, uh, as, well as the Romans being in charge, which was largely... Um, around taxation and it was largely around uh, violence and, and, and the threat of violence against uh, insurgency. The real authorities at the time of Jesus were the temple authorities. It was the temple authorities who decided if you got justice and it was the temple authorities who decided if you got access to God. So they had a monopoly on this. So if you wanted justice, if someone wronged you, you had to go to the temple. If you wanted access to God, you had to go to the temple. There was a culture of honour and shame, as there still is in many traditional societies, and the temple was the means of exerting control over people. That's how they did it. And the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And what is that doing? What's happening there is that Jesus is subverting the authority of the temple and the temple leaders. Is it any wonder that the temple leaders wanted to kill Jesus? They absolutely wanted to kill him. No question about it. He was a threat to their authority. So in effect, to say that Jesus is the sacrifice that that the early church insisted on, like he was the sacrificial lamb, like the Passover lamb, is to say that the temple authorities no longer have um, authority over access to justice and access to God. Does that make sense? So, and, and the early church insisted on this, that Jesus was the Passover lamb, that he was the sacrifice uh, to end all sacrifices, that he was the uh, sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice to pay for all of the Jewish transgressions of the law. That, that was the message of the early church. That's how they interpreted Jesus' death. And is it any wonder when you consider that Jesus stood up at the Last Supper, we call the Last Supper, but it was the Passover, to say, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. And, and, you know, we should remember that the early disciples and the early church were persecuted to the point of death. Many of them were murdered for claiming this. They really were. I'm going to draw your attention to one of those stories in, in Acts 7, verses 51. Acts 7, verse 51. This is about a year after Jesus' death and resurrection, and one of Jesus' disciples, Stephen, has just been delivering a devastating speech, criticising the temple authorities, and this is what he said. You stiff-necked people. 
Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And so you have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling That is the temple ruling authorities. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw an apparition, a vision of God. And he said, he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, which is the place of authority and power. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. In other words, Jesus is in authority and you temple authorities aren't. You temple leaders are not in authority. Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The temple is now no longer be required and you guys are out of a job. That's what he was saying to them. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now this Saul, later, about five or six years later, we'll have a vision on a road, a journey he takes to Damascus. And it's a vision, an apparition of Jesus that he says, and he claims is the same type of vision and apparition that the disciples had post-resurrection of Jesus. And he even says that he's like the original apostles who saw Jesus firsthand. He says, I am like them. My experience of Jesus was the same as their experience of Jesus. So you've got this man, Paul, who was previously called Saul, who was effectively one of the temple authorities, one of the temple leaders. He's a proven of the death of Stephen. A few years later, he's going to encounter Jesus himself and be transformed into the person we know as Paul, who wrote all the letters and established the church in, in and around the Mediterranean. And it says... While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, Paul, approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Can you see how the early church interpreting Jesus as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices caused absolute revolution in Jerusalem? Absolute revolution. They basically disempowered the temple and the temple authorities. Now, later, um, the temple would be destroyed itself by the Romans in AD 70. And in fact, AD 70 is around about the time that Mark wrote his gospel. And Mark records Jesus as saying that the temple would be destroyed. He prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And to destroy the temple is not just to destroy a building. It is to destroy the institutional authoritarian structure of Jewish society. Do you see? It was complete revolution. And whilst the temple and the structures and the authorities were destroyed at AD 70, the reality is is that the sacrificial system ended and it, it, or the beginning of the end, when Jesus' followers said, Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So Jesus and his followers destroyed the temple system. Now what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means the same for us as it does for the original followers of Jesus. For Jews, Jesus' death and resurrection abolished the need for the temple and the sacrificial system to define their relationship with God. They no longer needed it. There was this battle, and if you want to understand a bit more about why 
Paul and the original apostles like Peter and John were actually in a bit of a battle initially, and you can read that in Acts, it was because these early Jewish followers of Jesus, Peter and John and those, they couldn't quite get their head around this. They struggled to. Even though they proclaimed it, they still struggled to. And Paul was really clear as well. The, the, the authority of the temple, the authority of the sacrificial system is done. There is nothing you can do to add to what Jesus has done on the cross. He's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So what does that mean for us? Well, we might not think that ju- justice for us is not determined by a temple, is it? No, we live in a, in, a, in a country where there's a civil law and we abide by that civil law. Yeah? Most of the time, huh? Okay, so the reality is, is that we don't live in that temple system. But we often do put our own framework of access to justice and God on ourselves. Especially Christians. Because what we've received, often we've received unquestioningly from people who have received it from their previous generation. They've received it from their previous generation. And what's happened in the 2,000 years uh, since Jesus is that different uh, regimes, different authorities have used the gospel for their own aims to control people. And if you look back through church history, there's a lot of that that has happened. So maybe we have actually inherited a system of thinking that defines our relationship with God. So maybe, I think Becky earlier on said, you know, some of us struggle to believe that God loves us. Why? Because we feel bad. We feel shame. How could God love me? I'm so bad. I'm such a bad person. You know, I've done this wrong. I've done that wrong. How can God love me? Or... We put systems of uh, access to God on ourselves by saying, well, I haven't read my Bible recently. How can God love me? Or I haven't been to church recently. How can God love me? You know, I've not been praying very much recently. I've not even been talking to God very much recently. How can God love me? And we constrain ourselves. We, We restrict our access to God by putting on ourselves perhaps issues of guilt, shame, and, and maybe even just religion. Now that might sound you know, a little bit personal and individual, but the reality is that certain streams of Christianity have made access to God conditional in order to control us. And so you, you, know, you might have grown up need, thinking that you needed to attend Mass or take communion in order to be forgiven by God. Or you need to confess your sins to the priest in order to be forgiven by God. Or you need to sign a statement of faith to be accepted by God, or you need to have faith in Jesus. That's one that a lot of us get confused over. We think, yeah, there is something we have to do. All right, you can take all those other things away, Owen, but we do have to have faith in God. Well, that, that is a point of contention, because that is a rule. If God's love is unconditional, there is no condition attached to experiencing the love of God. Um, you need to have a regular quiet time. You need to speak in tongues. I'm not criticising any particular wing of the church. I'm, I'm going for it all because the reality is even here at Seven Vineyard, there may be some things that we do that, that implicitly communicate to you that there is something you need to do in order to be loved by God, to access God, to have access to justice. And there's not. And I'm sorry if we've done anything that has you know, made you feel like that. There is nothing that stops you getting access to God. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed end all sacrifices. That was the interpretation. That was the discussion that the early church had about Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice once for all. There are no strings attached. So, 
Just to quote the words of Paul the Apostle in Romans 8, 39. Nothing, and I say it with my northern action, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Just let that sink in for a moment. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It means you don't have to do anything to experience the love of God. It means you don't have to obey a system of rules or a culture or a pattern of behaving. Nothing can separate you from the love of God because Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Do you see how our understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection has come through what the disciples, the early disciples, understood of Jesus' death and resurrection? It was in the context of the Jewish story of Passover, that Jesus was like the sacrificial lamb. He was like the sacrificial lamb that removed all of the constraints so that everyone could access God and the power of the temple authorities and the power of the law was nullified because Jesus was a sacrifice to end all sacrifice. That's good news. That's good news. And it's profoundly good news. It's not just a sort of good news that you kind of jump up and down, you know, and, and get excited about it. Because feelings like that generally are driven by adrenaline and they tend to subside when the adrenaline's gone. Does anyone know that feeling? Last night I had a glass of milk and a flapjack just before I went to bed. And I really shouldn't have because I couldn't get to sleep. Because my brain was stimulated by all that glucose in my bloodstream. And I don't want you to think that you're, why, why has that created so much conversation? <laughs> you're like, yeah, I did that as well. Yeah. Um, my point is, is that this is, not a, this is not a feeling I'm trying to generate inside of you. This is a reality that you get to live in. Whether you feel up or down, whether you feel high or low, whether you feel happy or sad, God's love for you is unconditional. Isn't that deep? For me, my personal um, sort of imagery that I use is I feel like a tree that's got roots that are kind of down in the water table, drinking from this truth. I feel like, oh, yeah, I'm digging deep into God here. I'm digging deep into God. The roots of my life are, are, are reaching down to the water table of God's love. And I feel nourished. I feel, I feel strong. I feel rooted. It doesn't make me feel like I'm having an excited moment or kind of having a... I mean, those things are great. But it's got, to be, it's got to be the baseline, friends. It's got to be the baseline of your life. So that when you're down, it can be there for you as well as when you're up. Does that make sense? So anyway, I, I want to stop talking and just invite you just to allow your roots to just go down into this reality. So um, why don't you stand if you want? You don't have to. Um, if you're at home, you might want to stand. And may the Spirit of God, now, right now, you just may, I just want to encourage you to close your eyes because help you not be distracted by anything else. Just imagine you're at the roots of your, your very being reaching down into this like water table of God's unconditional love. And may the, the strength of unconditional love, the open access that you, you long for, I just hear that you have it in Jesus. That's the gospel of Jesus. You have it in Jesus. So just allow the roots of your, your very being just to, just to sink into that, that table of love, that water table of love, and just draw up sustenance and, 
power and hope and joy, purpose and meaning. Let it just kind of fill you up from your roots. Come Holy Spirit and do that we pray. Because the sacrifice of Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That's the gospel of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just allow yourself just to be filled with hope and joy. Even if you're feeling low, I'm not asking for an adrenaline kick for you. I'm just asking that the Holy Spirit would fill you with his love and fill you with his hope and fill you with his joy. More of you, Jesus. May the love of God be to you like oxygen is to you. Like it's completely, like, completely necessary for life. May the love of God, the unconditional love of God, be like water to you. You can't live without it. 